You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. CoinHive is installed via a misconfigured AWS S3 bucket, unintentional password collection, threat and risk trends for 2018, Avalanche Fisher King is rearrested in Kiev, Huawei says it's being picked on, Apple makes nice with Beijing, we've got some industry notes, controlling interests and an ICS Security Series B round, Reality Winner wants her confession suppressed, Al Martin's Packrat defense may have received an unexpected boost, and could alien signals be alien hacks? I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, February 27th, 2018. The CoinHive crypto jacker found last week in the Los Angeles Times has an explanation. It was apparently introduced by a hacker who simply exploited an unsecured Amazon Web Services S3 bucket. The hacker obfuscated the CoinHive code, making it more difficult to detect. Another illicit but more amiable visitor deposited a helpful note in the bucket for the LA Times administrators to find. It says, quote, Hello, this is a friendly warning that your Amazon AWS S3 bucket settings are wrong. Anyone can write to this bucket. Please fix this before a bad guy finds it. End quote. An editor, perhaps at the Times itself, would amend this to be before another bad guy finds it. Amazon has been working to help its customers make better security choices. Users of Amazon Web Services would do well to inspect how their buckets are configured. Princeton University researchers conclude that website analytics services have been unintentionally collecting passwords. The researchers began by looking at the AutoTrack data collection service used by the product analytics shop Mixpanel. AutoTrack is described as a comprehensive user data collection service. The researchers found that AutoTrack had been collecting password data unintentionally, even though the service incorporated heuristics designed to prevent just that. They then determined that other services were also unintentionally harvesting passwords. CrowdStrike released its 2018 Global Threat Report yesterday. Among the findings are the rise of supply chain compromise and cryptocurrency-related fraud as significantly expanded attack vectors. Another interesting finding is the speed with which successful attackers are able to pivot laterally from an initial compromise, just under two hours. Haystacks this morning released its 2018 insider threat predictions. They see ordinary employees eclipsing privileged users as insider risks, and they see behavioral monitoring becoming the new normal. An Adobe Flash bug patched earlier this month has resurfaced in malicious Microsoft Word files as criminals seek to repurpose the exploit against vulnerable systems. A few quick industry notes. Huawei continues to protest that it's being singled out unfairly as a security risk by U.S. authorities. Apple has quietly acceded to Chinese government requests that it grant access to Chinese iCloud accounts. 
In happier news, South Korea's SK Telecom has taken a controlling interest in Swiss quantum encryption shop ID Contique and Boston-based CyberX, the critical infrastructure defense shop, announced today that it's received $18 million in Series B funding from investors led by Norwest Venture Partners. Ukrainian authorities have again arrested Gennady Kapkanov, said to have been the leader of the Avalanche fishing gang. Mr. Kapkanov was arrested in Poltava in November of 2016, but was released under shady circumstances and has been on the lam since then. Police scooped him up in Kiev this Sunday. When it comes to securing systems, hardware and software are likely top of mind for most people. But what about firmware? Terry Dunlap is co-founder and CEO of ReFirm Labs, where they specialize in IoT security, specifically vetting and validating firmware. What we've been able to find in a lot of our research when we look at uh, the firmware of IoT devices is insecure coding practices, using a lot of stir copies that create buffer overflows, uh, command injection attacks, things of that nature, that if somebody was actually educated or took the time to thoughtfully program a lot of the functions that are in these IoT devices, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in today. That's the number one problem that we face in IoT. All these problems that we're facing from a coding level have been eliminated primarily in laptops and servers and things like that. So we're, we're seeing a regression back to the wild, wild west days of the 1990s when Windows was always so vulnerable. But we don't see those problems anymore because they've been pretty much eradicated in today's you know, desktop and server laptop market. But we see this, this resurrection of these, these problems now in IoT for whatever reason. And so what do you suppose those reasons are? Is there insufficient market pressure uh, to have uh, a watchdog on, that, on the programming side of things? I think the the pressure is margin pressure to get this stuff created as quickly as possible at at the cheapest possible rate. And so a lot of the firmware that we've analyzed once we talk to manufacturers, a lot of it isn't even produced in-house by the manufacturers. It's all outsourced overseas to uh, Southeast Asian uh, original device manufacturers. Is the message getting out? Are manufacturers starting to realize that this is something they need to pay attention to? I think they're starting to notice, but I think a lot of them are still of the mindset, well, it's not going to happen to me. Hmm. I, I think when you look at more IoT or I IoT devices, like in critical infrastructure, people are taking more serious look at what's going on. But if you look at your device manufacturers, like your low-end IP security cameras, your routers, your switches, some of the toys now... Uh, I don't think there's a lot of focus on security there because a lot of those people, based on what I can tell, are the mindset, you know, okay, so what, what happens if, you know, my IoT internet-connected toy gets hacked? So what? Uh, do you think that, um, I mean, firmware, it seems to me, is something that it's easy to overlook. You know, it's, yeah. it's deep down in the system. I think people don't often think of it as, um, it's not top of mind. No, it's not, because most people are familiar with the term hardware and software. Not many people know what firmware is, and I would probably bet a large chunk of CTOs and maybe even CISOs at large corporations probably have never considered firmware a threat vector. So it does require some education. I think people are starting to, to understand, especially in the C-suite of a lot of these companies. Most of us everyday Joes don't encounter firmware that often unless we see an update for maybe our phone because our phone runs firmware. 
So if you have an iPhone or an Android and there, there's a, you know, an OS update, that's basically firmware that's being pushed to your phone. So if we find a firmware that actually has a hard-coded backdoor in it, and a lot of the backdoors that we've encountered are usually left there quite by accident by engineers so they can facilitate uh, and expedite testing. And unfortunately, maybe they're not following a checklist, but those backdoors are never removed in the, the final product. Mm. So if a manufacturer notices that, they can push out a firmware update that would completely rewrite the existing firmware and remove that backdoor. Now, I'll give you an interesting uh, story here. A few years ago, we were approached from a foreign telecom company who was interested in having us evaluate the security of one of their uh, Internet gateway devices. So we took a look at the device, uh, and we said, yes, there, there, there's a hard-coded username and password in there, probably by mistake, engineering. Send it, you know, Here's our report. Talk to the manufacturer, your vendor, and, and uh, see if they can get it removed. So some uh, weeks, months go by. We get the updated version. We look. And we say, yes, the backdoor and password has been removed. However, it has only been removed. It's been moved to a different location in the firmware. <laughs> so this is being done maliciously. What the you know telecom company decided to do after that, we didn't get any further information. But this is the type of trickery that goes on under the hood, uh, depending on who you're dealing with. So you know, it's it, it's hard to catch this stuff. But there are people out there in rare cases, like this one I just explained, where it's done maliciously. That's Terry Dunlap from Refirm Labs. Full disclosure, Refirm Labs and the Cyberwire are both located in the Data Tribe startup studios. This interview came through our normal editorial channels. The trials of two accused NSA leakers have become a bit stickier for the prosecution. Reality Winner, the Georgia-based former NSA staffer and former contractor, who admitted to FBI agents that she was the source of highly classified documents leaked to The Intercept, wants her confession to stealing and leaking classified documents suppressed. She maintains that she was improperly Mirandized by the FBI agents who interviewed her. She also appears to be positioning herself as a whistleblower, as various whistleblowing advocates point with alarms to the chilling effect her prosecution will have on future leakers which is, of course, from the government's perspective, a feature and not a bug. In a federal courtroom in Baltimore, the case of former NSA contractor Hal Martin is in progress. Judge Marvin Garbus, who's presiding over the case, has some questions about the degree of proof the prosecution will need to present to get a guilty verdict. According to Politico and CyberScoop, the judge has asked whether the government must show that Mr. Martin knew he had specific classified documents in his possession, or if he could be prosecuted under the Espionage Act of 1917 without the government having to offer such proof. Judge Garbus has asked both prosecution and defense to address this question in briefs. This is thought to favor the defendant's case. His lawyers are essentially representing him as an eccentric but fundamentally well-intentioned pack rat. The sheer volume of classified material allegedly recovered from his shed in the Baltimore suburb of Glen Burnie may give the prosecution difficulty. It was around 50 terabytes. Who knows what could be in there? Maybe not even Mr. Martin. And finally, we offer some thoughts for the UFO-logical community. Alien experiencers, you can stop worrying about abduction and start worrying about malware. That's right, where once the Greys might have been out to administer an interstellar colonoscopy to learn whatever can be learned from the Terran fundament, now it seems more probable you'll face an intergalactic Stuxnet. That's right, we've long thought that actively sending messages to aliens... Are you listening, Mr. Musk? 
was a stupendously imprudent thing to do. But what harm could just listening for them in traditional SETI fashion do? Well, a lot, according to astrophysicist Michael Hipke and John Learned, respectively from the Sonneberg Observatory and the University of Hawaii. How do you know that signal isn't downloading malicious extraterrestrial code? I mean, come on, it's not like we're Frank Drake listening for spacefarer's Morse code on our Heathkit ham radios anymore. All of this stuff is networked and automated, which, by the way, is the same reason SETI volunteers are such good candidates for cryptojacking. Hipke and Learned conclude at the end of their thought experiment that on balance it's worth the risk. But here's how they frame that risk in their paper's abstract. Quote, A complex message from space may require the use of computers to display, analyze, and understand. Such a message cannot be decontaminated with certainty, and technical risks remain which can pose an existential threat. Quote, Well, okay, that's right. If it's just an existential risk, then all right. Uh, if you wouldn't take a USB drive you found in the parking lot and plug it into your system, why in the name of Gort would you process an alien signal on that same system? You don't know where that's been. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's from the SANS Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. 
Johannes, welcome back. Um, you know, it is not uncommon for uh, me and many other people to go searching for the cheapest possible cables online if I need a USB cable or a lightning cable or whatever kind of cable. But uh, you want to make the point that um, maybe not all these cables are secure. Yeah, in particular, like if you find a cable and may not even pay for it, uh, there is actually a lot of complex software and hardware that goes into these cables. If you're, for example, looking at a modern USB-C or a Thunderbolt cable, uh, those cables have firmware inside the cable uh, that, of course, can easily be replaced. Uh, now, aside from that, uh, there's also another type of cable that I've come across lately. Hmm. It looks like a USB charging cable and functions as such, uh, but uh, it also has a little SIM card built in and has the ability with a microphone to listen in on conversations in the room. Hmm. And an owner of this cable could then also request uh, the GPS coordinates, even though that's fairly rough. It just uses the triangulation of the of the cell phone network. These cables are sometimes sold as sort of spy devices and, well, uh, actually act quite well. Uh, the idea, according to manufacturers, is that you leave a cable like this as a charging cable in your car. And if your car ever gets stolen, you can use it to essentially find your car. Uh, but actually, they, they work a lot better as an eavesdropping device than as a GPS. And uh, that, of course, has all kinds of privacy implications if you have an innocent-looking USB cable in your office that could be turned into a microphone at any time uh, via a remote phone call. Yeah, I've also seen uh, available online uh, devices that just look like a standard USB charger, a little tiny brick, but inside there's a camera and microphone. Correct. Now, they're typically not remotely accessible. The problem uh. with these cables in particular, that all you have to do is you have to send an SMS message to the phone number associated with the cable, which will then cause the cable to call you back and allow you to listen in on any conversations in the room. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, interesting times, right, when you have to worry about your cables having it, having their own phone number. Right. And, uh, you know, I would say it just uh, if you get a cable, you don't quite trust the uh, you maybe find one in the office all for a sudden. Usually you can wiggle a little bit at the connectors, and if the connector comes apart and a SIM card pops out, <laughs> uh, that's probably a bad sign. <laughs> all right. Good advice as always. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.